Happy Sabbath, everyone. <laughs> it's good that you're here today. I'm grateful that you're here. Uh, it is nice to witness the baptism of a young man. Uh, church grows. Uh, church grows in many ways, and I just want to celebrate for just a moment another way the church has grown this week. On Wednesday, uh, Brandon and Jordan Couch, that's uh, the wife, Jordan Couch, uh, welcomed a baby girl. Uh, so first-time parents, little baby girl, uh, Josephine Claire Couch. And uh, so we just celebrate along with that little family that our church family grows as well. And uh, what a wonderful, precious thing. <clears throat> the Christian life is a transformational life. The Christian life is transformed from the non-Christian life. The center is intended to shift from self to being centered in Christ. And just that alone is a significant transformation. Paul has already written about this transformation taking place in the lives of the Ephesian believers. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that that at one point they were by nature under God's wrath. God's wrath is not directed at sinners but sin. And they were under sin. So at one point Paul says you were by nature under God's wrath. But because of God's great love now they were under God's grace. Ephesians 2.8 the key text of the whole letter. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Also in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul kind of describes that transformation a little bit where he says that, that these Gentile Christians had once been excluded. The Bible says they were far away from God's covenant family. But in the blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, instead of being far away, they have now been brought near and are no longer outsiders, but very much fully inside the family of God. In the early portion of Ephesians chapter 4 that we looked at last Sabbath, Paul began to unpack what it looked like to walk in those new realities under grace, in the family of God. Now, how do you begin to live that out is where he turned his attention in chapter 4. And today we're going to spend our time in Ephesians 4, 17 and following. And what we're going to discover is, is Paul's going to speak to their pre-Christ experience, their kind of pre-Christ condition of these Ephesian believers and compare that to their new experience, their new condition in Christ. Before we go any further with God's word, let's, let's ask for his blessing. Our Father in heaven, as we open the Bible, your words to us, I pray that you would speak to us, uh, that you would give us again that gift of being able to set aside distractions and for just a little space of time today, have that spiritual gift of being attentive to your words so that we can hear whatever Whatever you want to tell us today, Lord. I pray that each person here would receive that message from you that they need to hear today. So, Lord, more of you and less of me. Let your word come through clear. In your name, amen. 
the Ephesus church was primarily composed of Christians who had come out of a Gentile culture. Surely there were some of those in that community that had come out of a Jewish background, but predominantly this letter is written to a community of believers who had stepped out of a non-Jewish Gentile culture. A culture according to the testimony of history, not just Bible history, but just history, a culture that was very devoid of the God that we hold as the one true living God. That this was a culture that was very much entrenched in paganism. In ways that would be hard for us to understand. A culture that was very entrenched in the immorality of sensuality. Deeply entrenched in that as just a norm of the culture. They were hardened against the drawing spirit of God. So when these believers received Christ, it meant not only a whole change of perspective, not only a new hope for eternity, but a new life experience in their present. Following Jesus is not just about the prize at the end. It's about the calling and the experience right now. To those whom Christ saves, he transforms. Old to new, Self-centered to Christ-centered. I want you to listen to Paul's dire description of the Ephesian Christians prior to receiving Christ. It's just a short, short few verses. But keep in mind this. As we read these verses, this is not a description of those that, oh, they are on the fringe of that society. They were just terrible people. They will never choose Christ. No, this is a description of the ones that chose Jesus. This was their prior experience, not the experience that they used to look at, but the one that they used to actually live. His words aren't overly harsh, but they are dire in description. Ephesians 4, 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Do you see the depravity of that description? Paul says that they're, they were hard-hearted toward God. That there was a, a rigid wall that was hard to penetrate with the love of God. They were calloused towards God. Which means not just a hard wall but layers. A callous to where they would no longer even feel that drawing love of God. And they were given to sensual, immoral behavior. It would be difficult for us to understand what that really was all about except for the fact that we're living in a culture that is quite similar, I'm afraid. And they were pursuing every kind of impurity with a greedy fashion. That doesn't mean that they were pursuing this uh, impurity, whoops, by mistake. No, they were striving for it with a selfish drive of greediness. I want that impurity. 
This was who they were before Jesus. And, and why were they walking in such a depraved manner? Well, Paul gives us a glimpse here. Paul seems to suggest that, that one of the reasons for their condition before Christ, their depravity, was because they lacked knowledge of God. That their intellects were like in a deficit in terms of knowing God. I mean, verse 17, it says, they walked in the futility of their mind, a, an aimless walk that had no real direction. And in verse 18, it says, their understanding of God, of sin, salvation was darkened to where they could not see. Verse 18 also says that they were uninformed. They were ignorant. They simply did not know. And so part of the reason that they were the way they were is they lacked education in the ways of God. They didn't know. So having described that condition, Paul then kind of writes now about how they began to change when Christ came into their experience. How instead of futility, they became focused. Instead of darkness, enlightened. Instead of ignorant, they were becoming informed about God through the revelation given through Jesus. Look at the next few verses. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. But, Paul says, in contrast to that prior ignorance, in contrast to how you were living life in that ignorant condition, now something is different. The language is a little tricky, but I think the core message comes through. Verse 20 says, in your previous life, you did not learn Jesus. The implication is, now you have learned Jesus, and it's changing you. Verse 21, it says, you have heard Jesus. The Bible says that the hearing of the word of God brings understanding, and wisdom, and it was changing them. Again in verse 21, they have been taught in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. Having been educated in truth as it is understood in Jesus, that revelation of the fullness of God that came through Jesus, they were changing. Now listen, I want to comment on that for a moment. One of the things that happened in their lives that so radically brought about transformation was that the spirit of truth was teaching them just as Jesus said it would. One of the things that brought about this radical transformation was the Holy Spirit empowered education concerning the very character of God, concerning the nature of sin, concerning the gift of salvation, as well as how to live in those truths. It was being revealed. They were learning and growing and being educated in the ways of God through the lens of Jesus. Church family, that is one of the main reasons we do what we're doing right now. One of the reasons we consider the, the word of God when we come together to worship is because learning about God changes us. This is why we have Sabbath schools for our little ones all and up to adults so that we can gather around and we can learn and discuss the word of God. This is why we have Bible study groups and we, we need more of these Bible study groups. This is why we encourage personal devoted times with you and the Lord and his word in your hand as you receive it because 
learning about God through the lens of Jesus changes us. Following Jesus includes that element of continual lifelong learning. Jesus, as he ascended, said, in a kind of a paraphrase, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to walk in the ways of God, all the things that Jesus commanded. There's a learning element to following Jesus. And it's part of all of our life's calling to not only continue to learn, but to continue to share what we learn. This is very much part of the calling God has put on my life. In the words of Ephesians, to be a teacher-pastor, pastor-teacher, to help followers of Jesus learn about God through his word, the truth as it is in Jesus, so that we all might continue to be changed. God, help me, and please continue to pray for me. Now listen, Paul's words to describe that total transformation of a new life in Christ, they continue to unfold, verse 22 to 24, that in reference to your former manner of life, you laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Paul says, look, in reference to, in comparison to your, your old life, that old life that was being corrupted as you pursued the lust of deceitful things, as, as opposed to that, now you are in an enlightened, spirit-convicted understanding of truth. Things are changing. And they have laid that old life aside. They're being renewed in mind, heart, character. They've put on the new self. And that new self has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. That new self is, is right before God and in holiness that new self is set aside for the purposes of God. Put on the new self. Take off the old garment of sin and put on that new garment of Jesus, righteous and holy. This had happened for them. And Paul is encouraging them to, to more fully embrace this new reality in their life, this new walking in Jesus. And, and this walk is not a half-hearted walk. The Bible never presents good enough. The Bible always presents the highest ideal and then promises a good measure of grace as we strive for that through the power of his grace and spirit. But it's not a half-hearted walk. It's a radical transformation in Jesus. Let me just jump to Paul's final expression concerning this transformation in Jesus. We'll actually begin with these verses next Sabbath, but it's kind of the tying thought of this portion of Scripture. It's the first two verses of Ephesians 5, 1, 2. It's the radicalness of the full transformation. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. It's not half-hearted. So transformed that your life, your walk reflects God. 
Like a son wants to grow up to be like his dad, as beloved children, we must desire to be like Jesus. The other day I was distracting myself with some video clips found on Facebook Watch, that little button on Facebook that gives you this line of interesting little video clips. Are you aware that there's a cottage industry of restoring classic shoes? I've heard of restoring classic cars, uh, classic antique furniture, but shoes? <laughs> this video showed the process of, of restoring a, a classic pair of Nike Air Jordan basketball shoes. And these shoes were completely used and abused. Heavily worn, it looked like after they wore out on the court, they became the lawnmower shoes. And in this fast little video, just zipping through and fast, uh, kind of fast forward or, or double time video kind of portrayal, they disassembled these shoes. They actually poured boiling water in the shoes so that the glue would let go. So the upper and the blowers were separated and they, they kind of disassembled it and then they scrubbed it and they, they bleached it. They even put it in this box that shone like UV light, I think, to remove the, the deep stains. They, they restained the leather. They repainted. Somehow they even scratched off the old little bubble logo of Michael Jordan and somehow could purchase new logos to affix to these shoes. And they restored these classic shoes. They looked as good as new, but they were still that old 1990 vintage something shoe. Listen, Paul doesn't describe here or anywhere else in his writings that in Christ our old lives just get refurbished. When we first choose Jesus, it's not just, can you just clean up my old life, maybe paint over it and make it look better? No. When we first choose Jesus, we take off the old shoes and put on new shoes. It's not our, our former nature refurbished. It's a totally new nature given to us in Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't say, hey, clean up that old pair of shoes so they look new, but that's still the old pair. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ says, take off that old pair of shoes and put on the new ones that I will provide for you. Now listen, you and I both know that, that when we receive Jesus and we put on those new shoes as it were, that it doesn't take long to where we start messing those shoes up too. Praise God that the workings of Jesus in our life is ongoing renewal. And we'll talk a little bit more of that several weeks from now. But that first experience with Jesus that these Gentile believers had just recently experienced is becoming a new person in Christ. And, and this actually matters because one line of thinking kind of lessens or cheapens grace. One line of thinking is, oh Jesus, cover up my sin while I purposely continue walking in those old shoes. Just make the old shoes look like new ones, but I still want to wear my old ones. The other idea is, elevating grace and talks about the transformation Jesus forgive me and transform me into your likeness I don't want those old shoes anymore I want new shoes 
Following that, in the next verses, we find Paul making more concrete this journey of taking off, in this language I'm using today, the old shoes and putting on the new shoes. Paul's calling, boy, it was lofty transformation to be imitators of God, but he begins to illustrate that on a much more practical level. Now, I say illustrated because what we're about to read is not a full description of walking in new life, but examples of walking into new life. This is not a a complete picture of all that God's grace does in transformation. Paul has a lot to say, but our goal today is not, let's just look at all those changes. It's no, let's look at what this letter says. And in this letter, Paul gives five illustrations of what it looks like to put off those old shoes and put on the new ones. And before we even read this, I also want to just reemphasize something, that what we're about to read does not represent a works-based perfection. After all, Paul has already stated in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. I'll say a little more about that in a moment as well. So that being said, we're going to take a look at this passage. And and in these passages, there's five examples where we can pull from the passage, Paul kind of saying, here's the comparison. Here's what a person looks like in those old shoes, the, the negative that needs to be put off compared to the person wearing this new creation, this new man, the new shoes, that's the positive that needs to be put on. So here it goes. You'll see how this works in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So first, just take a quick note that we're talking about community here. Members of one another, your neighbor. That's the the relationship that's kind of in mind as Paul says what he says. And he says this, listen, the old walk is characterized by dishonesty. Maybe divisiveness, bearing false witness, falsehoods. And that ought to be put off. But the new walk that should be put on, the positive, is honesty in a way that builds community. Maybe trustworthiness is increased. This new walk in Jesus, it calls for honesty. Not just not telling a lie. But it's a much bigger principle. Not just avoid telling a lie, but speak truth. Being a person of your word. Being a person that when you promise, you commit to that promise. Someone who speaks truth with integrity. And why? Because we are all one in Jesus. If you speak falsehoods to the other, you're lying to yourself. We are one. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And walking in Jesus is a walk that demonstrates truth. Listen, the positive to put on is a high principle. It's easy to know I did not tell a lie. There's kind of a line there that you can kind of discover. Where is the line that says, have I spoken enough truth? That's a harder line to discover. And so what we put off is not nearly as high as what we are to put on. It continues, verse 26, 27. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. This little passage here could 
quickly get difficult. <laughs> so let's stick to the core idea. The old walk is characterized by anger, maybe grudges, bitterness. But the new walk is characterized by righteous anger. The kind of anger that abhors evil. The kind of anger that abhors injustice and sin. Anger that is focused on the evil, not the evildoer. But instead be a person who seeks to bring reconciliation. Not holding on to bitterness and to not hold on to that seek reconciliation and to seek that quickly before the sun goes down. It's a, it's a sense of urgency. I don't know if it's an actual hard schedule as much as communicating, don't let this fester too long. Act upon it quickly. It's always interesting to me to consider the fact that anger does have a place in the walk that reflects Jesus. I mean, Jesus had moments of anger, but it was rooted in his righteousness, not his self-protection. We often get angry because we have been harmed. Myself has been wounded. It's anger that is rooted in self. But when Jesus got anger, there was no sin in it. He was angry not at the, the sinner, but was angry with the sin. And in that sense, his anger was well-placed. You and I both know to arrive at that place in our life is truly an act of God's transforming grace. To begin to only have anger towards the evil, injustice, and sin and not the person that is perpetuating it. God's transforming grace can get us there. The new walk is a walk where the believer is, is anxious to bring healing and reconciliation where anger has called an in, caused an injury. Holding on to anger, it leads to bitterness. And bitterness is like opening a door for the devil. So Paul says, don't let that door stay open very long. Close that door before the sun goes down. Don't give the devil an opportunity to destroy. Verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Here again we have this contrast of old and new. The old walk characterized by those who, who take what does not belong to them for personal gain. But the new walk is characterized by those who, who labor to earn, and they labor to earn so that they can have excess in order to help others. Well, that's dramatically different, isn't it? And the idea of stealing needs to be understood broadly. It's not just uh, uh, taking what is not yours is the broad idea of stealing. And that certainly includes taking an, an object, something that belongs, it's physical, it belongs to you, and I take it. That includes in this description. But think more broadly than that. For example, it is stealing to kind of take the praise for something that you don't deserve. It's a, maybe a type of theft to, to take credit for something that doesn't represent your labor. For our young people that are just finishing a school year, it's a form of theft to maybe take an answer off of someone else's test sheet or their homework. It's not yours, it's theirs. Consuming something that others have provided with no effort to contribute yourself. That you're consuming something that others are funding 
and you're not contributing at all. Hmm. Of course, one of the highest levels of theft is the theft of God by withholding that which belongs to Him in our time, in our resources, in our tithing. The old life is takers, but the opposite of taker is an earner and a giver, a person who labors and earns an honest wage and labor with the goal of not just meeting their own obligation, but, but I want to have some excess so I can help others who may be needing help. Listen, the Christian's goal of labor is not to stash cash, but it is to place themselves in a position to be able to take care of their own affairs and still be able to help those that might need help. Walking in Christ is truly a walk that is described as being generous. 29 and 30. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In chapter 1, Paul spoke about when you receive Christ that in the Holy Spirit you've been sealed as his own possession. Here Paul is addressing those that are being sealed that the power of their words need to change. The, the old walk is characterized by rotten words of slander and gossip and divisiveness, but the new walk is characterized by wholesome words that edify and uplift and encourage others. Jesus told us, you can find it in Matthew 15, that, that it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. And in that, Jesus is establishing that a person's words and how those words are are given, reflect what's really in the heart of a person. And the person walking in those old shoes, they're, they're speaking poorly of others when they're not present to defend themselves. That's gossip. They'll speak words that come from a place where the Spirit of God does not dwell. We'll speak words that tear others down in an effort to kind of selfishly lift themselves up. But the new walk in Jesus produces different language, not just different words, but delivered in different ways. Words that are wholesome and good. Words that are edifying and, and lift someone up that, that share the grace of God. Words that leave the listener better off than they were before they heard them. And this, again, is not just withholding the negative words, but proactively using your voice to build others up. And did you notice that according to this passage, unwholesome language grieves the Holy Spirit? It kind of reveals to us that the Holy Spirit has heart, has person that can be wounded and hurt. And it kind of makes sense when you follow this line of thought. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will dwell in the heart of a Christian. Jesus says that the words that come out of our mouth reflect what is in our heart. And if we say we're followers of Jesus, that we're walking in these new shoes, if you will, but our words reflect the spirit of sin, then the spirit of God is being defamed. You claim the spirit of God dwells in your heart, but your words make that spirit look very ugly. Our words are powerful and those who are walking in newness with Jesus will not use those tools of our words to demolish but only to build. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God and Christ has also forgiven you. 
This passage is familiar to us. It's one of the more familiar passages in the letter to the believers of Ephesus. Many of us have committed it to memory somewhere along the way, but let's be clear what it says. It's a contrast. The old walk is characterized by being unkind, hard-hearted, unforgiving, but the new walk is characterized by kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiving. In verse 18 of this chapter, he just talked about their pre-Christ condition was the hardness of their heart. In that former life, there's this image that that their hearts were hardened. It's the image actually of of a broken bone that when it heals, that healing spot is now stronger and harder than the bone was before. And break after break after break, harder, 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 harder. The idea is that each act of unkindness fosters more unkindness. Each act of failing to forgive produces a hardness that makes it more difficult to forgive but here in verse 32 he describes this new walk as being kind tender-hearted forgiving kindness loving others treating others with love and respect regardless of who they are and the way they're living their life tender-hearted a heart that that sees the needs of others and is soft towards that is moved to compassion to see if we can help and forgiving The heart that is quick to forgive because they grasp that I have been forgiven so much. Surely I can forgive others. What a difference the old and new walk makes, right? So there are the five examples. Just as we head towards a close, let me ask, how's your walk today? (laughs) As you look at the contrast between old walk of sin and self and the new walk in Jesus, how's your walk today? If you're like me, you are quickly seeing where your walk falls short of what's being described here. Are my words always full of truth and honesty? Do I have and am I holding some anger and bitterness? Am I holding a grudge? Are there areas of my life where I'm much more of a taker instead of a giver? Are my words hurtful and sometimes unkind? Am I hard-hearted in some areas of my life? Am I being unforgiving in others? My walk is perhaps a lot like your walk. God has indeed brought us beyond where we once were, but we recognize that we have not yet arrived to where he desires to take us. The new shoes he gave us when we received him may need some renewal. But Jesus is very much in the work of ongoing renewal. And it's good to ask ourselves this question, how's our walk? Because when we begin to sense our need, then we're in the right frame of mind to hear the good news of the gospel. Did anyone here happen to notice I skipped verse 31? Let's go back to verse 31 because in verse 31, there is a gospel message. It's subtle, but it is so important. It's there. Look at this, verse 31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. This text is somewhat of a summary of those examples we just looked at. But notice the words, let all of that be put away from you. Let it happen. The language is describing something that happens to you. Not something that you accomplish, something that is accomplished in you by someone else. You allow it to happen. You let it happen. This transformation, 
is an act of surrender to God's transformation. The words of verse 31 tells us that if we will let go of the desire to walk in the old way of sin, then God will take it and put it away from us. In other words, if we are willing to give up the old shoes, God will toss them away and he himself will provide and put the new shoes on your feet. As we close, I just want you to think back. Do you remember as a child having a pair of shoes that had just worn out? Scuffed, dirty, torn, holes, maybe the toes blown out because your feet were getting bigger. Did you ever ask your parents for a new pair of shoes? And if you really needed new shoes and they had the resources to get those shoes, I'm sure they went out and bought you new shoes. Church family, we need new shoes. <laughs> we need to walk more fully in the ways of Jesus. We need to let go of those old and desire the new. And the only way that can happen is to ask God, our Heavenly Father, for newness. We simply do not have the resources to go buy a new pair of shoes for ourselves. We don't have the ability to let go of the old shoes even and to put on the new. But Jesus has earned the currency to buy those shoes. He has the power through the cross to take off the old and put on the new if we'll let him. All we can really do to our, say to our Savior is, please help us let go of those old things in my life. And please let me let you put on those new graces and change me again. Our Father in heaven, may your words bear fruit, not just in idea and concept, but in the reality of the lives that we live. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.